0: Amen, amen, you guys can grab a seat. It's good to be with you guys Uh, this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to the book of Matthew. To the book of Matthew, chapter five. That's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me throughout the sermon. So we are continuing our way through the most important sermon ever preached, ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing, he's laying out for you and for me the foundation of the kingdom of God, the vision of the kingdom of God. And as you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's no way you could come to the conclusion that Jesus wants a kingdom with nominal participation. There's no way you could read the King, the, the Sermon on the Mount and think the kingdom of God is something that's just about your private life and how you're doing personally without, with no concern for the outside world. You can't read the Sermon on the Mount and come to some conclusion that he just wants this kingdom for small homogenous group of people in certain places in certain times, but not the whole world. Now when you read, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount all the way through, what you begin to see is that he is here to explode your categories. He's here to turn the world upside down and undermine all our preconceived notions about blessing and joy and love. He's here to take over every area of our lives. He is here to bring the kingdom of God and transform societies. His vision, when you read it, is lofty. His commands are weighty and his rewards are unmatched. But this is the kingdom of God. And Jesus alone knows the way, he alone is the way. And so he's teaching us and he's showing us throughout this entire sermon, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what is the kingdom of God and what is it like? So we're gonna read the text where he covers today, what our calling is, as the people of God. And we're gonna read where we were last week because the text, last week and this week, they overlap together. So Matthew five, verse 13 through 16, this is the word of God. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So last week we saw Jesus calls us, you, the salt of the earth. And this week he says, you're the light of the world. Now these are really high callings. And it's really important that we remember when he says you there, it's a plural you, more like a y'all kind of thing, Texas style, right? He's saying, you all, y'all, the light of the world. Now when he says that you there, it's important we understand who he's talking about. He's talking about Christians for sure for our uh, context. But when he's teaching this, when he taught it, the you he has in mind are those who possess the Beatitudes we spent nine, nine weeks covering. He's saying you to those who are poor in spirit, to those who mourn, to the meek, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to the merciful to the peacemakers, to the pure in heart, to those persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's talking to a people, he says, you are a group of people, typically when you read the Beatitudes, those are not people who possess much authority or power in their society. The meek don't tend to possess authority and power in their society. The you he's speaking to are not those in power. He's not talking to politicians or business leaders or the famous, or celebrities. That's not who he's talking to. When he says you, he's talking to his people. It's God's calling on your life no matter your status in society because your status in society cannot give you this calling, only Jesus can. So you need to hear this, Jesus is not concerned with your level of authority in any given society. He is concerned with how much his people bless the society that they're in. He's not concerned with how much position you possess. He's concerned with how much we as a people bless the world around us. But what happens for us, for most of us, and you're seeing the American church really grapple with this right now, is that we really only want to be salt and light to the world so long as the world rewards us and appreciates us. We're confident, we're happy to be salt and light, but I'd like to have a position of power in the process, please. I'll serve you if you serve me back. But here's what's happening. The church, generally, is receiving less and less esteem and less and less rewards for being faithful from our culture. And what's happening is we're reeling a little bit and we find ourselves less inclined or a little less passionate about blessing others when it seems like they're taking away our cultural power and influence in the process. So here's what happens. We begin to reel. And so instead of trying to bless the world, we try, we try to strong arm the world. Instead of blessing the world, we, then we try to conform to the world. Instead of blessing the world, we attempt to withdraw from the world. And you see Christians doing all sorts of these things. Some Christians attempt to strong arm in the name of truth. Other Christians attempt to conform in the name of love. And so other Christians attempt to withdraw in the name of purity. Now, we could debate the merits and the strategies and the follies of any given decision But here's what I'm concerned with. I'm concerned that what is truly driving all of these stark responses from the church is not a true, genuine calling to bless the world, but more rooted in a sinful, more fearful desire for the power we've lost. So we try to strong arm or conform or withdraw. I'm concerned that we don't know how to bless when we're not blessed in return. We don't know how to bless when it won't gain us any long-term sort of chess move power over time. How do you bless when it just is a blessing to them and not to you? And to be honest, this is a largely new experience, honestly, for majority culture, white Christians like ourselves. It's a new experience for us because more than we've realized, like you don't realize how much you love power until it's taken away. Like you don't realize how much of a comfort it was to you more than the kingdom of God, but the kingdom I have here until that begins to be taken away and all of a sudden I don't know how to trust God anymore. All of a sudden I justify tactics that I never would have justified in the past, but why? I'm scared now. And so we have a lot to learn from, do you know when you go to heaven and you meet Christians from all generations, all over the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, When you meet them, do you know the majority of them, their experience as a Christian trying to bless the world was not done from the center of power of their culture. The normal experience for most Christians in Christian history is to bless the world from the margins. To bless the world and not get votes when they do it. To bless the world simply because we wanted to serve. We didn't have an agenda. That's most Christians experience. and We've had this unique season in history in our context where many of us, myself included, we've benefited from a sort of cultural power we've had and we thought we were spiritual, then it gets taken away and all of a sudden we're reeling like everybody else. And I want you to know how good of a time this is for the church. Don't be scared. This is good for us because Jesus is purifying us. He's purifying me of what it means to be successful. He's purifying you of the lesser hopes and joys and promises of lesser kingdoms that can't save you. This is a good time for the church. That's a scary time. It's a good time for us, because Jesus is always in charge. He's, He's not reeling. He's not thinking, oh no, what are we gonna do if they're in trouble? No, he's in charge. He's using it to purify us, to teach us where blessing really is. Because remember, what are the Beatitudes about? A blessing, what are they about? They're about how God showers onto his people rewards and joy and satisfaction. So the less reward you get for being a Christian in your culture, the more pure your devotion becomes to Jesus. Because now you can see, wait, do I love Jesus? And that's why I'm doing this? Or is it the rewards I'm getting from the world around me? And you get to see, oh, wait, his blessings are superior to the world's in ways I couldn't have seen until the worldly rewards were taken away. He's showing off, church. He's showing off so you could see no, no, he is trustworthy. That's why Jesus, before he calls you to any lofty endeavor, like being the light of the world, he starts with the Beatitudes to say, trust me, I will give you the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you comfort in every circumstance. He does not send you into culture empty handed. He does not send you into the world empty handed. He sends you into the world with promises. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know what I'll give to you, he says? Satisfaction to the max you'll get to experience the wonder of knowing God. You'll receive mercy. You'll inherit the earth. You'll receive rewards from God in heaven. You'll be children of God. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, this is who you are. This is what you'll be. So when I call you to do some lofty things, remember my promise. Remember, I'm not sending you out as somebody without joy. I'm sending you filled up with his spirit. The way of Jesus is not a repressed way. It has bigger promises and bigger categories that last longer than every other promise in the world. But your sin will say, but where's the immediate satisfaction? Where's the immediate reward? And Jesus is telling you, trust me, I'll come through. When they begin to fade, he'll be just as strong as ever. So when he says, you are the light of the world, it has nothing to do with your status in society or how you're treated. It has everything to do with the calling he has given you. If you're you're wondering, what has God called me to do? Here's one of them. Here's one of them. You don't need to pray or think or light some incense and go, Father, where are you, right? He just told you. And listen. What God calls you is what is most true about you. Not what you call you, not what your parents call you or your children call you. What is most true about you is what God calls you. And he just called you and me the light of the world. So here's the main point for today. That in Jesus, you and I were made to shine good works to the world so they can see the heart and kingdom of God our Father. So look back at the text at verse 14, show you three quick things, the identity, design and purpose of being light of the world, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world, stop there. So notice this, it's the identity of every believer. You are, are the light of the world. It's not conditioned on anything you've done. It's not based on anything that you did or did not do. It's simply who Jesus made you to be. So it's not a question of if you're the light to the world. The question we're gonna deal with later is what kind of light will you be? What kind of light will you be? And he says you are the light to the world. So not just to a specific group of people who look like you and act like you, but to the entire world. Planet filled with all sorts of people groups who don't look like you and don't act like you. And he's saying, you're a light to all of them. This is your identity, Christian. You are the light of the world. Second, he makes the point that by design, this light of ours is made to be seen by the world. Look at this, the next line, verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city set on a hill cannot be Hidden. Now he's comparing us to a city set on a hill. It's worth mentioning just one line, that this city on a hill is no nation state ever in the history of the world. It's the people of God, that's all I'm gonna say about that. His point though, in using this metaphor of a city on a hill is twofold. One, he's saying it's the nature, it's really simple, but it's the nature of a city on a hill to be seen. But by nature, you can't help but see it. So if you drive along 360, You look at those houses on the hill, and once you repent of your envy and wanting that house, right? once you move past that, you can't help but notice it. It's it's just the nature of what it means to be set on a hill. You can't help but be seen. And two, he uses the city metaphor because it's supposed to be this collective, it's corporate, that shining your light is a community endeavor. So this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine. It's true, but it takes a community to do that. There is no person in this room who can fulfill all God has made you to be without other people in your life. There is no one who becomes all that God has made them to be alone. Nobody. Your story and your life in Christ is interwoven and interconnected forever with the people of God. You're meant to be a city set on a hill, his church not to be hidden from the world. And last one, third, the last metaphor, look at verse 15. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. He's talking about God's intent for making us light. He says, no one lights a lamp with the intent of covering. Why do you light a lamp in the first place? So that the whole house can be lit, so everyone can benefit from it. God's intent to make you and I the light of the world was never, listen to me, was never merely for the benefit of the church. It was always meant to go out to the world and not just the people around us, but to the world, to the ends of the earth. The the people of God were always meant to be a blessing and their presence be a service to whoever they're around, both where you live and to the ends of the earth. It's your identity, it's your nature, it's your purpose, if you are a Christian, to show the world this light. Now, what is it about light? Why does Jesus use this imagery of light to teach you about who he's made you to be. What is it about light he's trying to draw out for us? Well, light is this image, this illustration God uses over and over again in the Bible, most often to describe his work in the world. I'll give you a couple of ways he does this just so you can have a framework for it. So light in the Bible, it represents God bringing order and clarity to chaos and confusion. Genesis one, two through three, the very first words God spoke in the Bible, you see him doing this. So it says this, the earth, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, darkness without form, without void, chaos, confusion. Verse three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. He speaks into something, he brings light to something to bring order and clarity to chaos and confusion. Second thing, light represents in the Bible, it represents God giving us instruction and guidance to our lives. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God speaks to us through his word to tell us what we should do and where we should go. In the last one, what we're going to spend our time on today, light represents the revelation, the exposing of what is for better or for worse. Light represents God exposing and revealing what is truly there for better or for worse. Look at John three nineteen. This is Jesus speaking, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. It reveals what's there, even if what it's revealing is evil. That's what light does. Now, I wanna focus our last time for the rest of our sermon on this, what it means for us. So light reveals what's truly there. So here's what it means for you and for me. We are meant to live in such a way that what is good and beautiful in the world, by our lives, truly looks good and beautiful. And to live in such a way that what is repugnant and evil and sinful truly looks as evil and as destructive as it truly is. Because light, listen, light does not determine what something is. Light merely reveals what's there. Shine light into a room, it's not changing the components of that room, it's merely revealing what's already there for better or for worse. What does darkness do? Darkness shrouds its surroundings so you can't make out what's there. You can't make sense of what's there. And that's why darkness produces fear in us because you can't see what's there, you begin to imagine what could be there, right? Like this is why you can be a normal human being and all of a sudden you get in a dark room and you're terrified because you don't know what's there. And with my, especially with children, with my young children, for me, when I was a kid, some of my earliest memories are being scared of the dark. I got over it, I'm a big boy now. But at one point, I was scared of the dark. And I remember my my younger sister, she was always so much more brave than me when it came to this, like she'd be three years old, I mean, pitch black room, and I would just look at her and go, well done. I don't know how to do that. And so what I needed as a a young boy, I can still remember some of my earliest memories are having uh, a lamp next to my bed on and the bathroom light in the hallway on because I needed that to help me go to sleep because what would happen? In the dark, my mind would imagine all these terrifying scenarios of what could be, but the light helped me. I could just open my eyes, look in the hallway, and see, okay, great, the predator isn't there. Good to know. Why I watched Predator when I was five, I don't know, Dad, why'd you do that to me? But that's what happened, okay? I asked him, I literally asked him last night, I was like, why didn't you let me watch Predator? And he just laughed. I was like, that's not an answer, right? Like, (laughs) it was awesome. Um, But I was terrified, so what does light do? It helps me open my eyes, look in my room, and go, okay, my worst fear isn't there. But also, it doesn't always comfort you because also I wish my mom or dad was there, but they're also not here either. All it does is show you what's truly there. Light is this guide to show you, to interpret what's going on. And so our lives, if you're the light of the world, one of the things you're supposed to do with your life is you're supposed to show clearly for people where can life truly be found and to show for people how evil and awful sin truly is. So virtues, listen, virtues that the Holy Spirit produces in his people like love and kindness and humility and forgiveness by your life, should be seen as life-giving as they truly are. So in your workplace, when you strive to be kind to someone who's disrespectful or doesn't deserve it, you're showing for people, kindness always beats being harsh, always. In your neighborhood, when you practice love and hospitality and you have people in your home and you're warm towards them, no matter what they believe, no matter their decisions in life, no matter who they are, you're showing people, oh, love truly is superior every other way. It is better to be warm towards people than cold. In your friends and family, when you strive to forgive people, even though they've wronged you, when you are humble enough to own up to the ways you have been wrong, what are you doing? You're showing them humility and vulnerability is not the enemy, it's the way to life. You are shining light for people to see, oh, that's where life is found. And listen, what's incredible is even when you fail, even when you don't live up to your own standards, the way you mourn, the way you confess, the way you apologize, the way you repent of your failing to the people around you, even people who don't believe what you believe and say, I'm sorry for the way that I treated you, that's not what God has called me to be. You're still showing for them and shining a light on, even when I fail, God's way is still better. His word is still true. The only thing that happened here is I'm broken, not God's word is broken. So we shine a light on what's good and show it truly to be good. And on the flip side, we show the world just how repugnant sin and evil truly are. So around us, racism should really feel like what it is. It should feel as awful as it really is. Is and not shrouded in cultural norms and ignorance. Misogyny should feel like what it really is and not be shrouded around jokes that demean women in the process. Sexual immorality should be feel for what it really is—this false god that keeps offering promises of freedom and fulfillment, but never actually delivering on them. From large-scale evil like corruption to Small scale evil like gossip, the way that we live, people feel this really isn't a good thing I should be doing. Now how do you practically do that? Don't be the referee in your office. sin, don't do that, right? It's not what I'm saying. If you're already writing down names, take it easy, people. Here's really simple ways to do this. Sometimes it means just not laughing at certain jokes. You ever been there where someone tells a joke and you're like, I don't want them to feel uncomfortable. Maybe they need to, maybe they need to. Not to shame them, just to say, I'm not for that. It's not partaking in the things everyone else is doing. Sometimes it does mean speaking up and asking questions, go, hey, what do you mean by that? Sometimes it means speaking on behalf of somebody else to protect them. Sometimes it means serving people that no one else around you even likes or respects, and yet you still serve them. And when you live like this and you shine a light like this, the world around us who's on the fence about Jesus or, doesn't, or even other Christians will sometimes, when you're following Christ, will feel strangely drawn to you and other times repulsed by you. Why? On the positive side, these truths, listen, Love and kindness and forgiveness and humility. This city, they're longing for because they still have the image of God on them. Something in them still knows that is the way life should be lived. And nothing about Darwinianism can teach me that those things are things I should strive for, yet everything in me knows kindness, forgiveness, and love are things that are where I flourish. And so we model that. They're strangely drawn to it but then you'll make people feel uncomfortable or even angry because you won't go with the flow on certain things. You won't let things slide. You you don't do it in a self-righteous way, but you can even kindly refuse and not feel obligated to partake in something contrary to the kingdom you belong to. You don't have to make a big ruckus about it, but they may feel uncomfortable. So to put more flesh on the bones for us, Right now in your mind, who are people in your life who are Christians who shine light like this to you? Like who are people that the way that they live, the way that they speak, it showcases what is truly good about what God has told us to do and showcases truly what is wrong and broken in us and in the world. I'll give you two examples and I love that I had a myriad of people in our church to think about this week for this first one. But there's a couple in our church that every time they host dinner at their home, every time, the best way to describe it is they shine light on how good hospitality is and being warm and familial and kind to anyone you meet in your home truly is. Like every time I go to dinner over there, I've seen about this week, how can I describe why I love it so much? You get this feeling that you could say anything and even if they disagreed with you, they'd still be kind. And even if they thought you were wrong, they'd still be warm. And there's this kind of haven about their home that every time I go there, I'm just, they shine this light on like, oh, things like love and warmth and kindness, those truly are what change people. And I get around them, they just shine this light and I just know I'm made for dinners like this. I'm made to, I wanna be a better host to people because of the way they host people. And then on the flip side of that, I'm thankful for the Christians in this church over the years who have made me feel uncomfortable or even angry because they won't partake in my immaturity or my sin. Who made me feel uncomfortable. And, and when I, and when I uh, was a new Christian and younger in the faith, I have a lot of stories of crossing lines. It was just my tendency. I just take everything to the max. And so, um, yeah, just, just, I'll leave it at that. So I would do that a lot when I was an early Christian. It was flooding with other stories to tell you. Um, there's, there was one time, I was brand new to staff. It was early on and we were in our offices and I made this joke towards a fellow staff member and it really hurt their feelings. And I was completely unfazed by it because in my mind, we were kidding, we were joking. You made fun of me, so I made fun of you back and if that hurt you, in my mind, I just didn't feel bad about it. Well, another one of our staff members, she was there, she saw it. She knew both of us. And she came to me and goes, hey, what you said was not okay. How you said it was not okay, you need to go talk to them. They're pretty upset. My first instinct was to get defensive and angry and explain to her, well, my intent was not that and we were joking around. Give the context, you ever done this before? Context, situation, you don't understand. I've had a bad day when I was seven and I had this whole thing, right? I saw a predator, I've been scarred ever since, right? Like I had this whole thing, as to why you can't, I mean, sure, yeah, maybe never say that word, but I said it and it's no big, I did the whole thing. And I remember I was frustrated, angry, defensive. I even had a hard time with her for weeks to contest. I was frustrated towards her, but why was I angry? Because honestly, if she just laughs at that moment and moves along, I never, I never feel the weight of what I said but she shined a light in such a way that made me have to feel I was angry because she was making me feel the weight of my sin. I was angry and defensive because she's making me feel, oh, I was thoughtless in my words. Oh, I was making being funny more important than being kind. She made me have to sit in that. She shined a light on my life and exposed what was truly there. And sometimes you will, have to, you will make people uncomfortable or angry, not because you're being a jerk. Now, really important as a Christian, if someone's angry at you, ask the question, was I a jerk first? Because maybe you were, right? The world getting angry at you because you're a jerk does not make you godly, it makes you mean. That's what that means, okay? But if, you ha- if you've been kind and respectful and they're still angry at you, it may just be because they're having to feel the weight of what they said and did and they don't like it. That's the nature of what light does. It shows what's there, even when what's there is evil and ugly. This is our calling to the world. It's who you are if you're a Christian. So the question is not, are you the light? The question is, how bright or how dim is the light of your life? How bright or how dim? Because the brighter a light is, the more clear everything else becomes, right? The brighter a light is, the more clear the room becomes. So a question for you to begin to like process, it's not a sermon just to hear, a sermon to process, where has your light, so to speak, grown dim? Like where does the light of your life look more like a cool new restaurant vibe than a operating room vibe, right? You know the kind of vibe restaurants where it's meant to be kind of dark? You look at your menu and you're like, I can't really tell what's there. Give me the special, I guess, right? It's part of the atmosphere, it's part of the vibe, but that doesn't help you determine what is. It doesn't help you see what's beautiful and true necessarily. It's bright like an operating room where detail matters. Listen, where nuance matters, but how could you ever nuance anything if you're not showing the world what's true and shining a light with your life? So where have you begun to settle for values and truth and joy lesser than the kingdom and word of God? A group up people in your life that you honestly, coworkers, friends, family, where you've kinda gone with the flow more than you should have. Or people where you have never actually shared any intimate detail of your life with them, maybe they need to get to know you more. Because when you shine this light, so to speak, when you live this way, Jesus says something spectacular is gonna happen. He says something spectacular is gonna happen. He says, they won't see how great you are. It's not the point. They'll begin to see what your father in heaven is like. 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Verse 16 explains what he's doing. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When you live like this, when you shine like this, they're getting a picture of what God the Father is like, and it is incredible. This is the very first time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus refers to God, not just as his father, but as our father. He talks about shining light, he immediately goes to, because they'll see what your father is like. They'll get to see what it means to have God as your father. When your life matches the kingdom of God and the values and the ethics of the kingdom and mission of the kingdom of God, they will get to see what makes our faith unique is not us. It's our God. It's his love and holiness that makes us unique, not us. And I really, really think that what our culture and what our friends who don't believe what we believe need to see, they need to see Christians up close and personal. It's really easy to believe in a caricature of Christianity when you don't have anyone contradicting that in front of you. It's really easy to believe caricatures of what it means to have faith in Christ when you don't know any other Christians to show you what it looks like. They don't just need a Christian who preaches the right message or a Christian who just lives the right way. What they need are Christians who have integrated, authentic lives where your words and actions mingle together to showcase what Jesus is like. You'd be surprised, you'd be surprised the number of people who we love in this city love in the nations, who do not know personally, who don't believe what we believe, and they don't know personally any thriving followers of Jesus at more than a surface level. Sure, they, they may share space with you at work or at school or in your community. They may even share a home with you. They share space with you, but so many of them have never gotten to know you or us in a personal way where we're showing them what the internal mechanisms of our heart is like as a Christian. Listen, even though every Christian in this room, we are a mess, we're broken, more than you realize, more than I realize, I am marred by contradictions in me. The more I get to know people, the more I get to know myself, I just see all the contradictions we have inside of us and in our lives. And yet, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God has already changed you so much. He's worked in you so much. What happens when you, be, when you finally believe in the Holy Spirit changes you, you get used to grace and you forget how incredible it is he's changing the ways that he has. Until you, you get around somebody else where they haven't experienced his grace yet and you realize just how different you are than you used to be. And so many in this city, they need to see what is the life rooted in the love of God look like? What does it feel like? like? They need to see what's it like to be sad and be a Christian? What's it like to be hurt and have hope? What's it like to work a job as a Christian? What's it like to obey? What's it like to serve? What's it like to confess sin? What, What's it like to pray? They need to see it. And you can't can't show them this from a distance. It works way better over dinner. You, you, You can't share those sort of personal details and layers of your story and how God is weaving it all together in passing as you get a coffee from them. Thanks for the coffee, You want to hear my story? No, I'm busy, that's how that works. They need to see and feel this word of God wrapped in flesh. They need to see God's activity in you with all the mess and brokenness that it means to be you. And what, here's what happens. Sometimes you'll say and do things that God looks on in your life and he is pleased with and they'll be repulsed by it. And other times, you'll do things that God is pleased with and they'll begin to be thankful for you. And even even if they don't even believe in Jesus, they'll find themselves in the recesses of their hearts. This is what Jesus is saying. Even giving glory to God, thanking God for you. Maybe saying things like, God, if you're real, This person, I'm thankful for this person. They may even pray prayers like that. And when the world has this strange interaction with you where it appreciates you and also rejects you at the exact same time, listen, you'll be in great company because isn't that what Jesus is like? Isn't that just what it's like to interact with Jesus? Have you ever read the gospels before? Nobody's like, "Eh, he's all right. Nobody does that. People are scared, people are terrified, people are angry, people are exuberant, people are inquisitive, but no one's indifferent. And when you interact with Jesus, isn't that what he's like? If you've been following Jesus for any period of time, isn't it just like him where there's sometimes we're following Jesus, you have never felt more loved? Have you ever had, if you're a Christian, you've at least had that moment once. I hope you have it more than that. Where you have this moment, where you're, those moments where you realize, I, no one loves me more than Him. No one knows me better than Him. He's forgiven me. He's loved me. This is my identity. You have those moments where you realize nothing could be better than Him. And then you also have those moments with Jesus that we don't have like to talk about as much, but they're just as real. Where He's so convicting and so challenging, and sometimes even discouraging about the way His Word talks about our sin, or what his word calls us to in his commands. And sometimes it's hard to be around him because he just was relentless on what he calls us to be and to do. That's what it's like to be around Jesus because Jesus is the true light of the world. And what does he do as the light of the world? He shines into darkness and better than anybody, he shows what's actually there for better and for worse. Nobody, nobody reveals the heights of God's love and the depths of our sins like him. Nobody shines a light on those two things more clearly than him. But here's what's fascinating that we need to take a cue from. It's strange to me that the way Jesus shines his light most clearly is not in a massive display of power, but it's when he sacrifices himself for other people. That's when his light is brightest, it's on the cross of Jesus Christ when he's suffering for sin, where you get to see most clearly the ferocity of God's love and the zeal of God's love and the expense of God's love for you. There's never a moment in history where you get to see more clearly, how does God love me like this, to hell and back for you? He shines a light on God's love like nobody else, but it comes through weakness. And it's through weakness where he shows and this is how awful and repugnant and evil sin truly is. Look what it costs. It gave you a debt towards God that you could not pay back. His, his love is too expensive for you to buy back with works. It's in his, but it's in his weakness where he showcases most brightly what it's like to see God, to see his love and to see your sin. It's Jesus who lost for our gain that shined his light most brightly. So listen, same is true for you. Same is true for you. You shine brightest to the kingdom of God when you serve rather than strong arm. You shine brightest for the kingdom of God when you're faithful to God and you lose instead of conforming to gain. When you stay in a corrupt world to bless it and not manipulate it. This is what you're called to be. Listen, this is the story of Christmas. This is the story of Christmas. God sought you out and me out, not in a conquering king sent to show off power and might, but how did he seek you out? In the weakness and vulnerability of a newborn baby boy. Why? Because you and I needed truth and love wrapped in flesh, up close and personal. We need it up close and personal to show us to light the way home back to God. And he did it in weakness and not in strength. And we bless the world often in weakness, not in strength. Let's pray together. Father, the calling You have given to your people the calling you've given to people who are broken and busted like us, who settle for lesser joys and lesser hopes like us. And yet, God, it doesn't exhaust you or tire you or frustrate you to call us things like light of the world when we 've done everything to disqualify ourselves from such a title and we are fearful of even playing such a role in the world at fear of what it might cost, yet Father, you sent Jesus to make us such things. Jesus, you died so our identity would always be sure and always be steady. so God, even as we fail, we can point to your kingdom and say it 's better than my way. God, even now, bring to mind people in our lives who we need to apologize to, people who don't believe what we believe, who we need to reach out and invite over for dinner, under-resourced and marginalized people in this city, we need to seek to protect. God, to be your son or daughter is a weighty thing, but it's a glorious thing. And like a good dad, you will not let us settle for anything less than who you call us to be. God, I'm thankful that your love keeps beckoning us to yourself, keeps calling us to yourself so that this world would see that you are a father of love and kindness and warmth and hospitality and forgiveness and patience and that everything that distracts us will truly destroy us, that sin will truly destroy us if we're left to it. Jesus, that's why you came after us, It's to save us for yourself, and to work with you to rebuild this world into what you made it to be. God, I don't know all the ways you're gonna call us to be light in this room, but I do know we can't do it without one another. So God, before we obey anything you've placed in our minds or hearts this morning, God, help us sing right now as confident sons and daughters that where you call, we'll go. And that every promise you have is true. And there will not be a moment, God, where we have served you that will ever be wasted. Jesus, we pray all these things, we hope all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen, church, let's stand, let's sing together.